Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, while I was researching the book, I discovered that, like, you can think of stands as pretty harmless, but... There have been these studies that have found that people who participate in standums experience psychosocial issues like depression and anxiety and narcissism and stalking behavior more than folks who aren't involved with standums. I mean, we're all in the cult of Instagram. I am completely beholden to Instagram in like the most disgusting way. I am my own cult leader <laughs> on Instagram. We have become so spiritually self-focused that like, I, to use a metaphor that I condemn in the book, drink my own fucking Kool-Aid. I'm Kirby. And I'm Sarah. Welcome, Welcome to, to Los, Los Angeles. Angeles! Every week we break down the most important beauty news and launches, interview your favorite beauty experts, influencers, and celebrity guests, and review our favorite beauty products of the moment as your beauty editor BFFs from the beautiful and great city of Los Angeles. Welcome Glamgelinos! We Ooh. hope you stay a while. Cute. That's cute. Amanda MFN Montel, you're back. <laughs> This is my favorite place. <laughs> Good. Well, you're our favorite guest. Don't tell anyone else. I have this file saved as Mandy Montel. Did you ever go by Mandy in your life? When I was like four, and then I very aggressively demanded that my parents no longer call me that. But then sort of ironically, and to troll me, my boyfriend started calling me Mandy. And now I like kind of almost like it. <laughs> okay. Well, then... I'll see how you feel about it. I'll check in again, but I'm not going to change my file name. My file name is Amanda Colt. Oh, okay. So that's your new last name. I love it. You love to see it. You love to see it. Um, Amanda, let's kick things off. What's on, on your face? face? Oh, so I got ready really hastily this morning because I had like a 6.40 a.m. radio interview that I was petrified was going to also include video. I don't know if you remember like last year I had a TV interview that I thought was going to be radio and all of a sudden I was on live TV with nothing on my face. Oh my God. I don't remember that. Oh, it was terrifying. Okay, so I'm wearing e.l.f. concealer, drugstore concealer. Great. A different shade under my eyes than over my like stress pimples. I have milk brow gel in my brows. I have Laura Mercier powder on my face. I have make blush. Oh. And I also love Jamie Makeup's Bly Lighter. So mm -hmm. I don't yes. actually have that on, but normally I would. But it was too dewy and I was afraid I was going to be on camera. So I was like, I want to be more matte, whatever. Then on my eyes, this is like not cruelty free. So I feel bad plugging it. It's really old and I wouldn't repurchase it. But it is the Tom Ford cream color for eyes in Sphinx. It's so good. That's a good cream eye. It looks so good. And it matches your top. It's so good. And I also have some Urban Decay, like a crease color in there too, for a little bit of dimension. And then, of course, my lip is Charlotte Tilbury. Pillow Talk? No, not Pillow Talk. No, the shade. I could go grab it, but it's my favorite like default shade. But it looks like Pillow Talk, but it's actually more corally than that. Once a beauty editor, always a beauty editor, Amanda Montel. Listen, listen. You can't totally quit it. And that's how you know it's a cult. <laughs> Ooh, what a good segue. Once a beauty editor, always a beauty editor, Amanda Montel. Exactly. The last time Amanda was here, and, and Amanda, you've heard us say this before to you, so this is not going to be a surprise, but your episode is the gateway into Los Angeles for so many people. That's so shocking. I mean, it is kind of shocking, but personally, I'm honored <laughs> that that's the episode Same. because... It's not typical beauty. Mm -hmm. And I hate to say that beauty's light and superficial, which it can be. 
but the conversation that we had had depth to it. And so many people tell us, I found Los Angeles through Amanda Montel, through this episode. I just saw is the beauty industry a cult and thought, oh, this is interesting. It was served to me on Spotify and then I became a fan. So you're basically like influencing people to listen to our podcast. Glamgelinos are intellectuals. They are. We beauty editors, we have craniums in there. We're not just a pretty face. (laughs) (laughs) We have brains, y'all. Cultish, your latest book, Brava, is out. Tell us a little bit about that. Give us the 411 on why you wanted to write an entire book about this subject. Yes. So cultish, the language of fanaticism, it's about the language of cults from Scientology to SoulCycle to social media gurus. So it's really unpacking the social science of cult influence and how language rather than flimsy ideas of brainwashing or anything like that is a cultish leader's ultimate power tool. And I've always been interested in fanatical fringe groups and the gurus that people give their loyalty over to, not just in classic cult scenarios like Jonestown or Heaven's Gate or Scientology, but also in the sort of everyday cultish spaces that imbue our daily lives. So the beauty brands and the fitness studios, I sort of have always seen whispers of cultishness everywhere. And that's in large part because I grew up with a former cult follower in the family. When my dad was in high school in the late 60s and early 70s, his father, who was sort of a hippie and a pseudo-intellectual, sort of forced him to join this pretty notorious cult that was situated in the Bay Area at the time called Synanon. Is this news to you, Kirby? Or is this news to both of you? I did not know this. I mean, I knew that this was inspired by your dad, but I have never heard of that cult before. Yeah, so it's one of the slightly more under-the-radar ones. There was a memoir that became a New York Times bestseller that came out last year called Hollywood Park, which was written by a Synanon kid, so someone who grew up from a very, very young age in the group. But my dad joined when he was 14, against his will. And until that point, he'd grown up like in the school of hard knocks, living in poverty in Spanish Harlem, New York, in Manhattan in the 50s and 60s. And so he showed up, and he's a skeptical guy. He's an independent thinker. My parents are research scientists, both of them. But my dad showed up, and he was like, hmm, this seems like a cult. (laughs) Not that that word was necessarily in his mind. You know, we think of cults as this universal symbol of fear. We think of them as nefarious by definition, but cults really didn't become well-known or any kind of widespread fear or national priority until that era, like the 60s and 70s, when the Manson family murders and Jonestown really put cults on the map as something that everybody should be wary of. So it was late 60s, early 70s. My dad moves to this commune that had a ton of weird rituals and protocols and rules. Kids had to live separately from their parents. They weren't allowed to go to school on the outside. At a point, everybody had to shave their heads and be reassigned new spouses. It was helmed by this charismatic guy. You know, now what we recognize is all the classic red flags of a cult named Chuck Dieterich. So what was the cult about? So it started out as this alternative drug rehabilitation center and later grew to accommodate so-called lifestylers. So people who just wanted in on this alternative form of living. It was kind of like a socialist utopia. It wasn't religious. It was really like sociopolitical and it was pitched as sort of this commune that was absent of like racism and violence and classism. It promised what a lot of these groups that end up being really destructive promise, which is solutions to the world's most urgent and pressing problems. So that's what attracted Mm. my dad's dad. But my dad saw a lot of red flags. So my dad laid really low. He privately questioned everything. He escaped every day to attend a real school on the outside, which was totally not allowed. Wow. Yeah, and I grew up on these really riveting stories from my dad. And the 
thing that always fascinated me most about Synanon was the special language that they used, that the folks at Synanon and Chuck Diedrich, the leader, created in order to do everything that a cultish group needs in order to gain and maintain power, to build a system of truths, to build a world, to create an us versus them dichotomy, to shut down independent thinking, to build connection and solidarity, all of these things. And so my whole life, I've always noticed sort of whispers of Synanon-esque cultish language everywhere. Okay, so can you share an example of some of the language that Synanon used? Because I'm fascinated by this. Yeah, totally. So like, for example, I mean, I already mentioned this, but the people who would join because they had drug problems, they were called dope fiends. And then everyone else was known as a lifestyler. The centerpiece of life in Synanon was this really fucked up ritual that they called the Synanon game. This was not lighthearted. This was not a fun activity, but it was referred to as something you played. Every night, members would be divided into circles and would be forced to subject one another to vicious personal ad hominem criticism. And it was pitched as a form of group therapy, but really it was a form of social control. Like a roasting daily? Yeah, like an extreme truth-telling activity. No, 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 no. Yeah, and actually, oh, the troubled teen industry was derived from Synanon. And this is a practice that you find in a lot of troubled teen organizations, like the group that Paris Hilton survived. Yes. Yeah, so it's wild. But the game was so central to life in Synanon that life there was divided into these two rhetorical categories in the game and out of the game. And that's how everyone was forced to think of it. There were just like all of these acronyms and terms that everybody used in order to establish in-group solidarity. So for example, they didn't believe in like having your birth parents raise you or having like traditional teachers who were brainwashed by the system teach you. Adults who chaperoned the kids at their quote unquote school and in their little like children's barracks where they would live and sleep were known as PODs or parents on duty. The teachers were known as demonstrators. There was a phrase that in my book, I categorize as a thought terminating cliche. This is not a term that I coined, but it's one element of cultish language that I talk about in the book. It was coined by a psychologist in the early 60s named Robert J. Lipton. It's a type of stock expression, easily memorized, easily repeated, that's aimed at shutting down independent thinking or questioning. All cultish groups have thought terminating cliches, and actually they can be found in our daily lives too, and I'll get to that in a second. But in Synanon, there was a thought terminating cliche that could be served whenever someone wanted to like doubt something or express pushback, and it was act as if. And it was this imperative to get people to act as if they believed in whatever the group was preaching until they did. So if you had a question, you were like, hey, why do we need to be reassigned new spouses? Is this even necessary? Or why is Chuck like suddenly permitting there to be like a paramilitary group in Synanon when this place was founded on nonviolence? Whenever anyone had a question like that, someone would just hit you with the phrase, act as if, remember, act as if, act as if you believe this until you do because Chuck Diedrich is all knowing and we need to trust him. It's like fake it till you make it. Yes. Totally. So thought terminating cliches show up in our everyday lives. And when a group has too many of them, it can be a red flag. So thought terminating cliches that we're all probably aware of are things like boys will be boys. Everything happens for a reason. It's all in God's plan. They're really compelling because they give you a license not to have to think and they alleviate like cognitive dissonance. So spooky stuff. Wow, 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 wow. Oh my God, I love this. I love this. Okay. Oh my gosh. Okay, Amanda, obviously we want everyone to go out and buy the book and they will, but without giving too much away, we would love for you to just define what a cult actually is in your definition. Oh, if it were only that simple. My personal definition of this word over the course of researching and writing the book did not become clearer, but only hazier and more nebulous. This is why whenever I say the word cult, I always put it in scare quotes, or I always hedge it and say cultish groups or cult-like groups or culty groups, or I'll use a more specific term like fringe religion, alternative religion, destructive cults. Because the word cult 
Oh, the etymology and history of this word is fascinating, and it corresponds precisely to our cultural relationship with ideas of community and spirituality and identity and meaning, and that relationship has gotten really strange. But essentially, it's led us to this point where the word cult can really mean anything depending on the context. You know, you can use it as an accusation that's super damning, implying death and destruction, or you can use it as a cheeky metaphor implying nothing but some like matching t-shirts and a little loyalty, you know? But really cult has become so subjective and so sensationalized and in some contexts so romanticized that a lot of scholars who study this stuff don't even use it, at least not formally, because it's not useful. Like it's not enough to determine whether or not a group is destructive, and if so, how destructive, and in what way. It's just, it's too subjective. That doesn't mean that we need to like stop using this word. It's just like way too context dependent. So really, I think of cults along this cultish spectrum. So while we might not all agree that Scientology and Goop are both full-blown cults, we can at least agree that they are cultish. And there are, of course, certain criteria that make a group cultish, an us-versus-them dichotomy, isolation, psychological, physical, or financial exploitation. Perhaps there's a charismatic leader, but there doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, perhaps there's an ends-justify-the-means philosophy. Perhaps there are some like metaphysical or spiritual elements going on. There's love bombing. There's gaslighting. There's a bunch of stuff that could be a part of a cultish group, but there's no like hard and fast list, list of criteria distinguishing a cult from a better accepted religion, from a brand that people really love. Like there is no definition and that's like frustrating, but also kind of fun. <laughs> Totally. I haven't listened to the episode yet. It's on my weekend listening on Spotify, but I know on your podcast, Sounds Like a Cult, mm. y'all went into stan culture. And I think that this is super interesting. I can't wait to hear the takes that you both have on it. Can you share some examples of celebrities, for example, that you think their fandoms fall into the cultish realm? Definitely. So I think there are a lot of things going on that have led celebrity standums to become a little too culty for comfort, if I may say. And this is why like beauty brands in some scenarios and beauty influencers can sometimes become a little too culty for comfort. And there are a few things going on here. First of all, in the United States at this moment, which I think of as like a peak cult era, kind of like the 60s and 70s, we are increasingly mistrusting institutions that are supposed to provide us with support and moral leadership and community and meaning and ritual and purpose. Like these are profound human drives that we all crave, but we are losing trust in the government and the healthcare system and mainstream religion. And so to fill these voids, we often find ourselves turning to influencers or brands or celebrities. And that can get risky just because all of these people and these companies have like a fiscal bottom line. Like they're in service of the success of their own personal brand. Also what's going on is like the boundaries because of social media and globalization and a bunch of contemporary phenomena, the boundaries separating a celebrity from a business leader or CEO, from like a religious leader or spiritual guru and like self-help guru and best friend, like these boundaries are becoming really blurry. And so you can have like a parasocial relationship with a celebrity where you're not just thinking of them as like a singer that you really love, you're thinking of them as a guide for how to live the rest of your life. And we look to certain beauty slash wellness brands and influencers in this way to some degree as well, because we're lacking this support and these sites of community and connection and we need somewhere to turn. So some celebrities I think have slightly more toxic standums than others. I think it probably goes without saying that like Taylor Swift has a really intense standum that's somewhere along this cultish spectrum. Elon Musk has definitely a more destructive standum. And it's weird that we think of Elon Musk as a celebrity, which like he full blown is. He just hosted SNL, but like 
homie is a businessman. Like he's a CEO. Why mm-hmm. are we worshiping him as like a lifestyle guru slash celebrity slash person that we're looking to to decide everything from like what to buy to how to vote like it is cuckoo when you step back and look at it I think a celebrity with a pretty healthy standum is probably Beyonce she inspires a sense of almost like spiritual transcendence in people actually her existence and her persona is like so spiritual for people that there's like a whole Beyonce womanist church service that's been constructed surrounding Beyonce which I honestly see no problem with that like I would rather see someone worship Beyonce than a whole lot of figures out there what about the Kardashians yeah the Kardashians oh my god speaking of someone who transcends the boundaries of like celebrity influencer lifestyle guru business person like Oof, they totally have stands. You know, while I was researching the book, I discovered that like you can think of stands as pretty harmless, but there have been these studies that have found that people who participate in standums experience psychosocial issues like depression and anxiety and narcissism and stalking behavior more than folks who aren't involved with standums. So it can provide, again, that site of community and connection that we so badly crave, but it definitely also comes with downsides. It's somewhere along the cultish spectrum. And on our podcast, we actually have these three categories that we use to determine how dangerous a group really is. Like we pick a different cult-like group from the zeitgeist, discuss it over the course of an episode with like games and guests and research. And then at the end of each episode, we try to determine whether the cult is a live your life, a watch your back or a get the fuck out. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I feel like I am Stan adjacent, even though I throw around the term Stan (laughs) nonstop on this podcast. But for anybody that's just tuning in to Los Angeles, I am a Britney Spears Stan. I would truly go to fight for legislation (laughs) to get her out of this conservatorship. You laugh, but I truly was thinking like, can I go to San Francisco? Oh, my light just fell off of my computer. That's Britney's ghost. (laughs) Yeah. Brittany's like, I'm hearing you, girl. But I'm like, how do I get to San Francisco to advocate for this woman? Like, we need to create the Brittany Act, get her out of the conservatorship, and help people living with disabilities not be taken advantage of and literally ban conservatorships moving forward. Dude, I'm with you because that isn't just about like you having steadfast, unquestioned loyalty to Brittany. That's you like standing up for a much larger cause. I am completely in support of that. Totally. Well, thank you, Amanda. But to my point about Sandom's kind of being toxic, <laughs> no pun intended, when it comes to Brittany, there was a segment of the Free Brittany movement that... They knew that they were right. They knew that they were onto something. And looking back, I was initially hesitant. And I've come around, obviously. And I I said on another podcast, I truly think that Britney stands could run the Department of Justice based on like what they did for her conservatorship. I'm not kidding. But there was a segment of them, I remember, when I initially spoke out and was like, Britney should have agency over herself. I don't want to push something on her without knowing if she actually wants to be free of this conservatorship. This was many years ago. And... I had stands on Twitter saying that I was getting paid by her team to say this. It was really, really weird and concerning. And even after someone was like, hey, y'all, Kirby actually isn't paid by anybody on Britney's team. There was a very large account that made a huge aggregated tweet list of people associated with Britney's team and had me on it. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's what I'm kind of saying. Like there are the parts where we're only at this point with the Britney Spears conservatorship case because of the free Britney movement and those fans really speaking out and sticking their neck out for her. But then there's that segment where you're like, you're really starting to spiral here. Well, it's interesting. There's a lot to unpack here. We're talking about the criteria for a cult. Again, there's no hard and fast definition, but there are like red flags and things to notice. And I say this a lot, and so many cult or new religious movement scholars I spoke to told me this as well. Anything legitimate will stand up to scrutiny. Like even if this cultish group that you're affiliated with or that you're related to is pursuing something really positive. And by the way, no one joins a cult that's, trying to accomplish something negative. Like you join a community that you truly believe is going to heal the world of problems. And so even if the group that you're affiliated with ultimately has a positive 
end or goal, you still need to be able to, like you were doing, express questions or scrutiny. And if you're met with thought terminating cliches, gaslighting, stock phrases that are meant to shut you down, you know, the thought terminating cliches, buzzwords and mantras and slogans that are there just to get you to conform, that is cultish language that deserves to be paid attention to. And like, there is no good cult, bad cult binary. Like these things fall along a spectrum. So it's not like just because some of Britney stands came for you, that means that Britney stands are full-blown evil. Like yes. it doesn't mean that there's nuance here. It's complicated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my God. Didn't Selma Hayek have a brand name nuance? Yes. Nuance. Freaking love nuance. We need more nuance in the world. <laughs> was that what it was called? Yes. Wow. Yes. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> it's called, I want a brand called nuance. We need more of it. <laughs> I'm dead. Amanda, do you feel like standum and like cultish brands and communities really skyrocketed over the pandemic because everyone was like at home online, didn't have anything to do. A hundred percent. Specifically, well, Peloton won, but also like a ton of beauty brands and like beauty influencers. Oh yeah. Like everything from cult followed beauty brands to like QAnon. <laughs> like cultishness has completely skyrocketed and I say somewhat facetiously but also completely seriously that the algorithm is the ultimate cult leader because social media algorithms just send us down rabbit holes leading us to believe more and more extreme versions of what we already want to believe and the pandemic provided the perfect storm for cultishness because conspiratorial beliefs and cultishness, which you like go hand in hand. If you have a community that's assembling around conspiratorial beliefs, that's pretty much a cultish group. They tend to thrive during these periods of cultural turbulence because we want simple answers to complicated problems. We want access to exclusive information. We want closure when things are really up in the air. And the pandemic left people feeling really anxious and desperate for community answers, all of those things. And some of us looked for community on Peloton leaderboards, and some of us looked for community in really insidious social media communities propagating QAnon ideology. But cultishness totally skyrocketed. And even before the pandemic, I think we found ourselves in just like a restless era that lends itself to cultishness because I write about this early on in the book, but like First of all, Americans are primed especially for cultishness just because of the way our country is set up and its history and everything that would take way too long to summarize. But also like millennials in particular whose lives who were told from a very young age that like you can be anything that you want to be. And then we had the economic recession of 2008 and then we had like Trump and then we had the pandemic and like all this trauma that made it so that we actually could not be whatever we wanted to be and yet the internet makes other people's lives so visible to us so we feel really stressed by the overwhelming number of possibilities for what a life could look like that we just want a freaking guru to tell us who to be to tell us what to wear to tell us who to vote for to tell us who to listen to it's like that flea bag monologue that she gives in season two where she's just like begging to the hot priest like i yes. just want someone to tell me what to wear and who to love and blah 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 like that type of choosers paradox where like you have such a crushing number of possibilities for your life that you just don't know what to pick like being in a fucking cereal aisle and it's like ah like there are too many cereals. You just want a guru who speaks with confidence and who speaks from a place of authority to provide you with this sort of like identity template that will tell you like who you are and where your life is going so you don't have to make so many decisions. And a lot of celebrity stand-ups, but also a lot of beauty brands provide that identity template. Like if you've decided like, okay, I'm going to be a Glossier girl. Then when you wake up in the morning, you're like, okay, what would a Glossier girl wear? How would a Glossier girl do her makeup? What would a Glossier girl read this morning? Like what websites would she go to? What social media accounts would she follow? Where would she have breakfast? What coffee would she drink? Like it just gives you that predetermined set of choices 
which can be really comforting to people, but also a little culty because it's like you're more complicated than just a Glossier girl. <laughs> I feel like with Glossier specifically, and maybe you can speak to this, I always felt like I was never cool enough to be a Glossier girl. I felt like I didn't fit the mold. I felt too old. Like I was too old to be a Glossier girl. And maybe for me personally, I just felt like my skin doesn't look as great as the products that they're making it for. (laughs) I don't look like a baby angel. So I could wear Glossier, but I would never be reposted by Glossier if that makes sense. Is there like an element to cults in that sense? Totally, because one of those criteria, and again, like this doesn't make something a cult, but it can very well make something cultish, is that us-them dichotomy. It's like, if you're a part of our group, you're superior, but not everybody can be a part of it. Because if everybody could be a part of it, then it wouldn't be special. And that's the problem with a lot of the beauty industry in general, Mm -hmm. is that it fills you with this anxiety that you're not good enough. And then it offers like solutions to those anxieties that it manufactured and yet we trust it because whatever we're like insecure as human beings and the beauty industry just feeds into that but yeah no there are a ton of beauty brands that are thought of as those like cult followed brands that pretty strategically create that us them dichotomy so that you feel like an outsider but that only makes you want to get on the inside And it can be especially destructive when it's a brand that is not only selling you beauty products and a certain aesthetic, but is also promising these larger life benefits, these sort of like health and wellness and spirituality benefits. So like Glossier is by far not the worst culprit. (laughs) What about influencer wise? Like who do you think has a really big cultish following good or bad oh god i mean like cultish influencers are a dime a dozen and it depends like what influencer space you're looking at because there's like girl boss like female entrepreneur space there's the sort of like new age spiritual kind of like metaphysical mental health space then there's like the beauty and fashion space which is the least toxic of at least like those categories that i've named because All that like a beauty influencer is really selling, at least a beauty influencer in like the old school, like 2016 sense, is like an eye cream that's gonna like get rid of your wrinkles and hot pics from their cool vacation. It's really these like wellness momfluencer, new age wellness people that trouble me because those people have started to overlap with the QAnon conspirituality community and really take advantage of people's anxiety during this ever restless era where to begin naming these people I mean well everyone knows about the Rachel Hollis drama that went down because like we look up to these figures as godlike like we really do look up to these people for answers to everything and they don't have authority like they don't have the credentials to be able to speak on everything from how to parent your child to how to make business decisions to like what to put in your body what to put on your face how to pursue your mental health treatment what who to vote for like they are not qualified and yet they do speak on all of this and thus we trust them because they are speaking with such confidence and then when they prove themselves to be somewhat fraudulent or scammy or at least not living up to those expectations that they set and we believed it's crushing to us but it's like of course this one person is not going to be able to be everything for you you know By the way, Amanda, I don't think you know this, but not the main reason I moved to L.A., but I moved to L.A. at the insistence of Rachel Hollis. No way. Yeah. She knew a a woman in Dallas (laughs) that was an event planner because Rachel was an event planner and had her own event planning business prior to becoming Rachel Hollis. And I had a phone call. I was put in touch with her because this event planner in Dallas knew I wanted to move to L.A. and was like, don't stay in Dallas, move to LA. I I know a woman who might be able to hire you as an intern. And that was like the job that got me to LA. 
You know, that's so funny because I moved to LA for a cultish leader of sorts as well, but not in the way you might think. I moved to LA for a toxic relationship. And I talk about in the book how a toxic relationship is really just a cult of one because we have these myths in our mind or these stereotypes in our mind of like the type of person who is likeliest to get involved with a cultish group, someone who's like desperate or disturbed or intellectually deficient. And throughout my research, I learned that those stereotypes are profoundly untrue and also dangerous because they cause us to like divide ourselves into our own us and them. Like those brainwashed mind controlled cultists and the normal skeptical people like us. But my argument is that like no one is immune to cultish influence and it's not just found on remote communes somewhere. It's found in our Instagram feeds, in our startups, in our workplace environments, and in our own personal relationships. So if anyone wants to know like how you could find yourself years deep into a group like Nexium or something like that, well, if you've ever been in a toxic one-on-one relationship, you know exactly how because you have loyalty to this person who in the very beginning of your relationship made you feel really special and like being a part of this was your purpose. And I'm not just even talking about toxic romantic relationships. I'm talking about toxic relationships with friends, bosses, influencers, you know, they can be parasocial. So yeah, that was actually a humbling discovery for me because I was one of those people who was like, I'm too skeptical. I would never find myself under cultish influence or, you know, under the the spell of a charismatic guru. And then I was like, oh no, I actually did just not in the way we're taught to think about cults, you know? So one thing that you touched on about beauty, you know, you said that beauty and fashion are more on like the lesser cultish spectrum, right? And you mentioned 2016 type of influencing. Yeah. But something that comes to mind for me often are the fans of influencers like Jeffree Star or even a guest that we had recently who we both really like, Hiram Yarbrough. He is one of the top skincare influencers on the platform. He's adorable. But even though he may not be actively trying to influence people in a cultish way, the way that his fan base reacts to things. So the example here is on TikTok, when somebody gives skincare advice, whether it's a dermatologist or an esthetician, they often will comment and tag skincare by Hiram to be like, do you agree with this? Mm. And Hiram has said specifically, I am not a dermatologist. I am not a esthetician. I'm not even licensed in anything of that nature. Everything is my own personal point of view. But the fans go to him to say, I need your approval of this, even though these people are more than qualified to speak on it. Well, it's funny because standum is like a beast of its own. And we talked about this like on the Sounds Like a Cult episode. Sometimes like these figures that the stands assemble around like want nothing to do with the standum or have like their own toxic relationship with the standum and wish the standum would back down. But it's interesting because those studies that I mentioned before showing that people who are involved in standums end up having these issues like depression and anxiety and their own narcissism and stalking behavior and stuff, that's like not even a product of like the celebrity or the influencer, the figure itself. It's like that person is not the equivalent of like a charismatic leader. That person like almost has nothing to do with it because the standum projects whatever they want onto the celebrity. And I think that really says something about our human cognitive biases we just so badly like want to put our faith into someone and it's really hard to resist that but I also want to say that like I do not think it's a good idea to be so skeptical and so cynical that you completely disengage from all cultish groups that you're a part of like I think that spoils the like specialist parts of the human experience you know like we are kind of like spiritual and cultish and group oriented by nature but it's important just to be like aware of these cultish language tactics first of all because it can really highlight the power that someone else has over you and your psyche but also it's just like important to be aware of like how much power you're giving over to one singular group or guru so that you can better determine how much of that power you wish to take back 
it's like actually a good idea to become involved with like a bunch of cultish groups so that you can have a reference point like checks and balances you know like not just follow skin by Hiram to follow a bunch of different people and hold a bunch of different nuanced opinions it's funny because like we have to think about like the scope of cultish groups like there is a hundred percent cultishness in like that classic like just straight beauty cosmetics influencer community but I think we can all agree like without having to explicitly state it that like the stakes and consequences of that quote-unquote cult are different from like the spiritual stuff and the QAnon stuff like we don't even need to say it like we already know it's different I think the mommy blogging community too Sarah maybe you've fallen into this very weird world no okay thank god because some of the mommy influencers are spreading the most egregious, horrendous advice and facts that are not rooted in any type of intellect or reason, to be quite frank. Dude, I have so many thoughts because a friend of mine, Sarah Peterson, just got a book deal for her book, Momfluenced, where she's doing like a full autopsy deep dive into this community. The momfluencer community, oh my god, just the Venn diagram of like the momfluencer community, the anti-vax, like conspiritualist community, the MLM community. Oh my god, I was just gonna say that. That was our next question. Yeah, it's like the Venn diagram could just like cross your eyes. It's like so, there's so much overlap there. But what makes momfluencers um, particularly compelling, I think, is because we're in such search of comfort and answers right now that when a literal mommy who has this like nurturing element to her is using spiritual new agey language to make you feel really held and really comforted even though they're spewing mis and disinformation we like so badly want to believe it because it's like a mom it's like the person that we're supposed to feel protected by even if it's not like our literal mom it's like a very specific type of culty power Totally. Especially too, if you're a new mom and you don't know what the fuck you're doing and you're like, oh, this one seems like she knows what she's doing and she has it all figured out. Totally. And this is the exact type of person I was talking about before who like feels qualified to speak on everything from like what you should be feeding your child to like how you should be medicating your child to how you should be medicating yourself to literally like how you should be voting. It is so bonkers. And also the causes that you should be supporting. Exactly. A big part of the mommy community last year that really upset me in many ways was when the whole Wayfair scandal went down. Because I had people sharing that Wayfair was trafficking children in kitchen cabinets that you could buy for $20,000. And what a lot of people didn't realize when the rally around stopping child sex trafficking. Yes, of course, that is a common ground. We can all agree we need to be aware of it and it needs to end. But the misinformation that I saw and disinformation that I saw that was being spread on places like Instagram and Facebook, specifically by mommy bloggers who said that we need to start caring about this more so it truly came it from did. QAnon. It was a QAnon conspiracy that trickled into mommy influencing. Pastel QAnon. Yes, yes. And that's why when people would ask me, well, don't you think it doesn't matter where it came from, that the cause is enough? I'm like, no, actually it matters because you're not just supporting ending child sex slavery. You're actually supporting a conspiracy that QAnon is perpetuating to their benefit. So the reason why that hashtag save the children movement language came up is because social media algorithms were catching up to QAnon. And so QAnon needed to disguise itself, needed to come up with new language in order to evade those social media algorithms and in order to get more people on board with the ideology. You know, not everybody is going to subscribe to the most extreme sort of like satanic Q drop side of QAnon, but people can certainly get behind 
a hashtag like save the children and then fall down a rabbit hole from there. So save the children was this hashtag that was co-opted from legitimate child trafficking organizations and then used to totally distract away from that to get people on board with QAnon ideology and then save the children rallies were held were any children saved from those rallies no like follow-up reports were done nary a child saved but it's just it's so predatory and it's so destructive because you're preying on people's desire to create a better world like we human beings we really are quite dreamy and we seek betterment which is a really beautiful thing but there is always someone who's going to come along and take advantage of that and also like we encounter more information in our daily lives as you know contemporary people on the internet than like most of human history ever encountered ever so like we don't have a very good internal human algorithm for detecting mis and disinformation and yet we think we do so it's just like this perfect storm the pandemic and all of it it's fucked can i just ask you what your favorite um mlm beauty mlm is <laughs> My favorite Malemalem? Yes, my favorite. That's a fun question because favorite could mean like one that I think is the least bad or it could be the one that I think mm -hmm. is the most bad. Let's give us both. Okay. The MLM industry is super predatory in general. And even though there are some beauty MLMs that like aren't as bad as the others because like the buy-in amount is lower and like the quotas are lower and like the culture isn't as fucked up, just as an industry overall, it's cultish as fuck. I do not approve. But... Have I used like a beauty counter brow gel or two in my day? Yes. <laughs> Did you buy it at Sephora? No, I was sent it for free. <laughs> of course. Like Amanda, that's the thing about beauty counter. Like you use the eyebrow gel, right? But they're an MLM masquerading as not an MLM. A movement. No, they're an MLM masquerading as a movement. And this is what I was talking about. It's like these promises that cannot be delivered on, these what are called organizational ideologies that millennial consumers and this like transient skeptical market need in order to feel good about patronizing a certain brand. It's like, it's not enough just to buy a brow gel. You need to buy into a movement. And Beauty Counter like really leans into that, even though like their products aren't that fucking eco-friendly, you know what I mean? What about lip scents? <laughs> Oh, lip sense. Oh my God. Don't, don't. I have PTSD. <laughs> they came after Kirby. They're an army. If they used all of that goodness of togetherness for something positive instead of raking me through the coals because I said I didn't like their products. And here's the thing is like, I'm very careful in my book not to drag the followers, never the followers, because it is not their fault. The MLM industry is especially spoofable but I don't actually blame this group of largely women who are locked out of the dignified labor market from buying this vehement promise that the American dream can be theirs, you know? Like, I don't blame them. But my favorite in a sort of opposite way would have to be Young Living. The MLM industry is so fucking nimble. It is so clever. Like you would think at this point, there's enough like anti-MLM videos and TikToks that like no one would ever join. But the MLM industry is just like so good at like figuring out different strategies to get people to join. So it's like in the 1950s, 60s, 70s and 80s, for a long time, like the majority of MLMers were these sort of like Susie Homemaker, wholesome stay at home moms. And now a lot of MLMers are these sort of like young women, these like young millennial women who are very like natural, organic, holistic minded and want to be micro influencers. Boss babes boss babes so the mlm industry has like accommodated their packaging and their language to reflect this new generation of mlmers so like young living and cults are expert rebranders like they're always changing their name they're always changing like how they refer to themselves so young living like doesn't even call itself young living anymore like they refer to themselves and their recruits with all these different labels like a girl from my high school sells young living but she never says young living she only says like oily mamas or like my little oilers yeah. Oh my God. Oily mamas. The oily mamas. Why would anybody want to call themselves that? Terrible, terrible name. Vile, vile. 
I tried so hard to just be extremely compassionate in the book because I don't want to actually come across as judgmental ever. It's just that the industry is so roastable. It's just so spoofable. Like the aesthetic and the posts and the hashtags, like it's just, oh, it's too funny. <laughs> so wait, your least favorite is Young Living. Yeah, or like Arbon. Okay, yeah. Your favorite would be Beauty Counter. Yeah, if you could even call it a favorite. It really is such a predatory industry, especially during COVID times. I don't know if you like caught wind of this, but early in the days of the pandemic, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, sent a bunch of like cease and desist letters to over like 15 MLMs because their army of recruits started claiming that the products could help your immune system to prevent against COVID and could also help you with financial security during these like crisis ridden times. It was pretty fucked. Well, I'm glad they got involved. Since we're talking about beauty and cults, I want to talk about the term cult favorite because it just gets used so much by beauty editors or, you know, by marketers, obviously. Totally. But I feel like it means different things when you're using it. Like, what is, like, the correct way to use cult favorite? Does it mean, like, it has a huge following? Does it mean that it's more under the radar? What's the right way? Or should we be even using it at all? Yeah, it's funny. When I was writing the book, I, like, searched the word cults in my old beauty editor inbox and was hit with like thousands of results. Like it's so overused. It doesn't even mean anything anymore. It doesn't have a precise definition, but remember when I was talking about how like it wasn't really until the 60s and 70s when everybody started to become aware of cults as something that we should all universally fear. So as these things tend to go, as soon as cults became frightening, they also became cool. And that's when we got phrases like cult following, cult favorite, cult classic to describe, you know, films like the Rocky Horror Picture Show or bands like the Grateful Dead and Fish. And we've gotten so far past that now that like cult favorite and cult following, like they don't even mean anything. But we know that like as conversationalists, we are pretty savvy at being able to pick up on the context and the stakes implied whenever a familiar word is used in conversation. So like when a beauty brand says that Pat McGrath's new face powder is like an instant cult favorite, we know that we're not talking about communes and poison and manic preachers like we know that even though the word is the same and we call pat mcgrath mother yeah but we take that conversational savviness for granted i mean there's of course room for miscommunication and like there have been plenty of people who will like come across some of the little like memes and stuff that i'll make on instagram and will feel triggered because I'm using the word cult or cult-like or cultish to refer to such and such a community that they do not think is cultish and that's their right and these things are ripe for misinterpretation but in general like we're pretty good at being able to tell when we mean something is like a destructive kind of cult versus just like a cult followed brand it's funny too because like Years ago, I interviewed the like SVP of brand strategy at SoulCycle about like how they cultivated their cult followed brand and SoulCycle refused to utter the word cult. They were like, we don't use that word. We say community. And yet for the same story, I also interviewed the founders of that brand lit method, which is more like up and coming, like trying to be the SoulCycle of indoor rowing, less concerned that they're an actual cult because they're like, still up and coming and I asked them how they felt about the word cult and they were like oh my god we love it our followers call themselves the bolt cult because our logo is a lightning bolt I was just like this is so interesting you know that when a brand or a guru or someone gets really defensive about the word cult that like it's closer to an actual cult <laughs> I am like a recovering soul cycle cult member and I have also attended lit method it's like completely different soul cycle is like yeah on a whole nother fucking level I know, I know. I was like saying like, if it doesn't challenge you, doesn't change you like at home. Like, why was I saying that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the Soul Cycle instructors who are, by the way, recruited from like performers and influencers, people have the charisma to like a command an audience. They're put through this training where they learn how to come up with their own repertoire of like cultish slogans to make people feel like they're at church. It does feel like church. 
And people are like crying next to you on the bike. It feels like new age church. Like, you know, with the weird synth music playing and it's like quiet. And the candles at the end. Yeah, and the candles lit and then the guys speaking in a weird cadence. It's such new age church stuff. It is such a strategic assault on the human spirit. Like it is so designed to make you feel like you are ascending to a new vibration or whatever the fuck they would say. Also like no shade to people who go to SoulCycle. Like SoulCycle is one of those quote unquote cults that like you have to determine for yourself whether or not it's healthy for you. Like if you feel like you can go to SoulCycle and unclip if you will and go back to your normal life and you don't have a toxic relationship with your instructor and you're not like constantly talking in soul cycle phosphoration in your daily life like more power to you but if you really really are treating it like your religion and a lot of people are like legitimately like the harvard divinity school has conducted studies showing that church for millennials like is soul cycle and crossfit so again that doesn't necessarily have to be bad but if you're just like letting it bleed into your entire life on and off the bike that's just like and you're also like broke as a result of it i mean yeah there are problems with soul cycle i mean there was this fox expose that came out last year talking about the toxicity in the company and alleged verbal disparagement that was happening and hidden hierarchies and sexual abuse alleged 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 so yeah it's scary (laughs) i loved a soul cycle class and i'd go back if they invited me I think SoulCycle for me is more of a cult than Peloton because at least with Peloton, you're by yourself. I mean, I know there's the New York studio, but you're by yourself. All of them do have sign-offs, you know, Boo Crew with Cody, Live, Laugh, Love Well or whatever it is with Emma. But I remember with SoulCycle, I went into a class one time and I felt like I had to go to SoulCycle living in LA. I went to go sit on a front seat and it was like before they had assigned seats or whatever. And I remember someone was like, get off my seat. They're reserved for the people that are committed to coming however many times. You didn't feel like you could sit in the front row unless you earned it as well. Yeah, I think that's weird. I don't like this feeling. Let me sit on the fucking front seat in the corner if I want to. Why am I being shamed for this? These things fall along a spectrum. And I think that SoulCycle probably is slightly more toward the cult, dear, destructive, end of the spectrum than Peloton. But comparatively, like when we're talking about the grand scheme of things, SoulCycle and Peloton are pretty much fine. Not really, but this is the thing. It's like you need to be open to the idea that cultishness pervades our everyday lives and none of us are immune to it. And it's sort of up to us to determine what groups are healthy to engage with or not. And if they are, to what extent. Amanda, you've mentioned many brands, beauty specifically, in this podcast. And we thank you for that because that's what we really wanted. (laughs) The tea! (laughs) The tea, girl. But... By your definition, which we know is nuanced, what are some brands that we may not consider cultish, but are, that you think kind of fly under the radar? I'll just say that the beauty brands that also promise health, wellness, and spiritual benefits are sort of the ones to maybe watch your back for. So a lot of kind of like the CBD wellnessy type brands that are claiming to not only like make your face look younger and less inflamed but also cure your anxiety and give you like the priceless opportunity to have a better life that's just not fair (laughs) for a consumer so it's kind of like those blurred lines between the beauty industry and the wellness slash mental health industry brands that fall into that nebulous category, I think are cultier than people might think. Um, I remember when I was searching for the word cult in my old work inbox, I literally came across like a CBD infused skincare brand. I think it was called like Tribe Tokes or something like that, that was saying that their cream or whatever it was, was offering the priceless opportunity to handle anything life throws at you. It's like from a cream, what? No impossible <laughs> besides los angeles the cult because we have glamgelinos we call our followers glamgelinos um 
what cult do you think we all would get sucked into? I mean, we're all in the cult of Instagram. Like, I am completely beholden to Instagram in, like, the most disgusting way. Like, I am my own cult leader. I am my own cult leader (laughs) on Instagram, really. Like, we have become so spiritually self-focused that, like, I, to use a metaphor that I condemn in the book, drink my own fucking (laughs) Kool-Aid. Like, and need to disengage. Mm. Like, speaking of red flags, like... One cold criteria is that, like, you can't get out. There's no exit strategy. I feel like I can't get out of Instagram. I need to defect. I need to escape. So definitely that. (laughs) That just got so real, like, so fast. Wow. Okay, ending on a low note. Here we go. Let's pick a fun call. Let's pick a fun call. Sarah, what cult would you be in? I think Sarah would be in the Nike cult. Yeah, for sure. I could be in that one. Definitely. Not any mommy blogger ones. Okay, so I genuinely would love to start a cult because my dream, my like five-year plan is to, in like the opposite way from an Instagram cult, I want to buy a plot of land in Idlewild, which for listeners is like a little weird witchy mountain town near Los Angeles, two hours away. I want to build a tiny house and I want to host writers retreats for women and non-binary writers. And everybody has to like eat vegan cookies and wear puffy sleeves and like do seances with me. Is that a cult? I was going to say wear nap dresses. Wearing a nap dress, I think, is a crucial part of that. A thousand percent. Like everybody has to wear like Faithful the brand or like whatever, you know, those like floral dresses, like Christy Dawn or whatever the fuck. Doan dresses. You know, or whatever, like the floral print of your choice. If you want to make it yourself, like, you know. Yeah, I want everyone to do ghosty, witchy things with me, but just for a weekend. And then you can go back to your life. Unless you want to follow me into the dark. (laughs) I think you would be an amazing cult leader. Thank you. Because you are charismatic. I already am in cults, I feel like. Britney cult. You're in your Skims cult. Oh, oh my God, the Skims cult. I need to get out. I have issues. Oh, but Kirby, you and I got out of a cult. We got out of the cult of highlights. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, we did. We got out of the highlight cult. This is monumental for me. I'm going into the weekend feeling invigorated. I think your hair color is like stunning. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I like cannot believe that I'm sitting here with the two non-super blonde Kirby and Amanda Montel. That is crazy. I mean, never say never, but I really don't think I'll go back. I can't. Your hair is stunning as well. I love your hair color, Amanda. I did consider getting like very light baby lights. I mean, I did that. It's so flattering, but... Now when I look at videos of myself with the bleached, blonde, broken hair, I'm just like, how did I live this way? It was crazy. It was absurd. You guys, it was a time for all of us. Even I had major highlights. It's fine. We're all good. And I'm only saying this because I don't think I looked good. Get your highlights done. But for me, I'm like, I thought that complimented my skin tone. I thought it too. It wasn't authentic. No, it wasn't. That's it. That's it. It just looked weird. I think it's so important to like return to yourself at a point. And like ourselves aren't stagnant. Like we're growing and changing all the time, but there is sort of like a baseline self. Like who are you at your most like unmitigated? And my most unmitigated self is not like a bleach blonde spray tan fucking I probably am going to start getting Botox again. I'm still getting Bobo and I'm still doing the self-tanner girl. So you're two steps ahead of me. But see, like it's different for everyone. And like, I'm not grateful for a lot of quarantine and the pandemic, but I am grateful that I was sort of forced to reacquaint with my genetics. And so I can decide, okay, like I don't need to do these things, but I do still want to do this, you know? Yes. You figured out your priorities. And so did I. And so did Sarah. Look at us now. Oh my God, but I'm still in the cult of eyelash extensions. Oh yeah, no, but that's your truth. We all survived the cult of the things that do not serve us. Exactly. A, F, and men. 
And on that note, Amanda Montel, we are going to set up a writer's retreat, especially for Glamgelinos, <laughs> so they can become followers of the cult of Montel. So on that note, please let us know, where can we pick up Cultish? Where would you prefer we pick up Cultish? rather and then where can we find you online thank you for those generous questions you can buy cultish wherever books are sold i'm doing signed copies from skylight books which is a los angeles independent bookstore but you can order from wherever in the u.s um just go to skylightbooks.com i assume and you can just order a copy of cultish and it will arrive signed bookshop.org is another great place to buy books it supports independent bookstores but if you want to buy it at the cult of amazon I can't tell you what to do. <laughs> and you can subscribe and listen to my podcast, Sounds Like a Cult, wherever you get your pods. You can follow us on Instagram at Sounds Like a Cult Pod. And you can follow me on Instagram at Amanda underscore Montel. And also, we are going to be doing a giveaway for Amanda's book, which we're going to be purchasing Amanda's book and giving it away because we like to help those close to us and support let me sign it let me send you like a signed book plate so that it can be signed and personalized perfect we'll do that so everyone head over to gloss angeles pod our instagram to learn how to enter we'll talk to y'all next week Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.